1 Samuel 4, 12 through 22. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man, of, and the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. At about the time of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid for your son, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband and she said, The glory of God departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Well, this is the word of the Lord. First, first Samuel chapter 4, you can divide it into two sections. You can divide it into verses 1 through 8, and you can divide it into 12 through 22. In verses 1 through 11, which we looked at last week, we saw that there's two battles that are mentioned there. The first battle, against the Philistines go against Israelites, and the Israelites are soundly defeated. 4,000 men die in battle. And then in the second battle, the Israelites are going up against the Philistines again. But what was the solution that Israel decided to, to use in order to win the victory over the Philistines? Well, they decided that they would just go back and get Hophni and Phinehas to bring the Ark of God out to the battlefield, and this would solve everything, God, or this box, if you will, would save them. They had no desire for God to save them. They thought the box would force God to save them. But God, we studied last week, will not be manipulated. And even though this initially brought great enthusiasm in the uh, camp of Israel, and it caused all kinds of fear to happen, two miles away, remember how loud the shout was? It, it was loud enough that all the people in the Philistine camp began to be afraid and terrified but they rallied themselves and they resolved to fight and they defeated Israel. And the headlines the next day read that Israel and the Philistines went into battle and 30,000 Philistines, I mean 30,000 Israelites were killed on the field of battle. The ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So we see two battles in verses 11 through, 1 through 11. We see two defeats. We see two specific deaths, the death of Hophni. In, Phineas. in verses 12 through 22, we see the news of the second battle received by Eli and by Phineas' wife. We don't know her name. Let's just call her Phineas' wife. 
Eli is sitting in his chair. He's sitting beside of the road and he's waiting. It says he's watching, but he can't see. So we know watching doesn't literally mean that he's seeing. But he's waiting on the news because he's trembling. The ark of God is out in the battlefield. He's trembling for the ark of God. And when the Benjamite ran in from the battlefield with his clothes torn and the dirt on top of his head, Eli wants to know what happened. And this man who comes running in from the battlefield tells him that Israelite, the Israelites have suffered heavy losses. His two sons are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. Well, this is just too much for Eli. And more than likely, most commenta- one commentator, I think is one, he said this. He said, most likely he had a heart attack. He fell over in his chair, and he died. When Phineas's wife heard about this and heard that the ark of God had been taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died on the battlefield, she began to go into labor, and she had a baby. And even though her attendants tried to encourage her along, you got a son, she stayed despondent. She named her son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed from Israel. The ark of God had been taken. The glory of God has departed from Israel. So again, we have uh, this, the report of this news, this second battle, the news of the second battle. We have two people receiving the news, and we have two people who die Eli and Phineas's wife. This is absolutely the lowest time in Israel's history since they they got out of Egypt. The darkness started in Judges chapter 2, and now we are all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Following the book of Joshua, following Joshua taking the land and the conquest of Joshua, There arose another generation in Judges 2, we see, that did not know the Lord, that did not know the mighty things of the Lord, and they forsook the Lord, and they began to worship the Baals and other gods. And now the darkness reaches its pinnacle as God's glory departs out of Israel as the Philistines take possession of the ark of God. Now one commentator put it this way, he says that Phineas's wife, that the story about her is the most touching in the whole Bible, he said. But she was wrong. And here's why. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed. That's the truth. How can this happen? Now, I want to answer this question. How can this happen? that we have this time from Judges chapter 2 to 1 Samuel chapter 4, all these years, how does this happen to Israel? And I think we can answer it by looking at Eli. Here's a man who ends terribly. Here's a man who is trembling and uneasy. Here's a man, it's not wrong to be, it's good to live 98 years. Steve, I want you to live to be 98 years old. It's not bad to live, but he's old And he's heavy, and one of the reasons he's heavy is because he's been eating those choice cuts of meat and that fat that his sons had been taking from God's people and from God himself. He had honored his boys above God, and he fell off his chair, and he broke his neck in total despair because he's under God's judgment. How can this happen? What did this man, why did he end so terribly? And Eli, as we've been saying all along, remember we kind of puzzled about Eli. Just so easy to be puzzled about Eli. Um, Did he walk with God or not? 
commentators are split. Uh, some look at his godly attributes, but also we see he ends severely judged. And his family is going to be severely judged. Positively, Eli pronounces benedictions on Hannah and Elkanah. Positively, he raises Samuel. Positively, he waits. When, when positive, We could say this. Positively, when Samuel tells him the bad news about how he's going to be judged, he receives it. And he's waiting on the ark of God as this man comes to deliver this news. But negatively, we see that Eli rebuked his sons and it was too late and it was too little. He did not remove them from their office when he should have. And the Lord declared that because he had scorned the sacrifices and honored his sons more than him, that he and his whole family would be judged severely. Some commentators believe Eli is in heaven. Some commentators believe that Eli is in hell. Some commentators say, I don't know. I'm going to tell you, I don't know. But he ended badly. We do know that. We do know he was severely judged at the end. Why did this man end so badly? Let's think about some of the answers. The scriptures don't tell us very much about Eli. In fact, did you, you saw that while we read. Forty years he judged Israel. We don't know anything about him until the author picks up the pen in 1 Samuel and starts writing about him, and he's already an old guy. Did he start poorly and end poorly? Did he begin well and become inconsistent later on? What we have here in our text is a man who's lost his wife. He's by himself, and he has two young boys. Did everything Was everything going okay as long as his wife was alive? And he was able to, to manage these boys all during that time. Did he, did he just go downhill because he lost his wife and he just couldn't handle things because of that? Or maybe everything was okay as long as she was alive because he was working all the time and never came home to take care of his family. But everything was okay as long as she was there. We don't know any, whether any of this is true or not. But there's one thing for certain. Eli sowed, reaped what he sowed. His corruption and his fall happened because you reap what you sow. Eli took one step at a time. Eli thought one thought at a time. Eli made one compromise at a time. And all of these things went in the wrong direction. If, you have, if you're taking notes, I'm, I'm going to read Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Let me just read these out loud to you. But your sermon is sowing and reaping tonight. And it comes from Genesis, I mean Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Tonight I want to give you a prohibition, a declaration, a law, and an explanation of the law. Let's look at the, the prohibition. Do not be deceived. That's a prohibition. There's two ways to take it. There's two ways to translate it. Do not deceive. Your, do not be deceived by anyone. Do not be deceived by anyone outside of you. Do not be led astray by somebody outside of you. Don't let the so, don't let the media lead you astray. Don't let the media tell you lies. How many lies are we being told every day? I mean, we could really we could really talk about this one, couldn't we? <laughs> lie, 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 liar, liar, pants on fire everywhere, right? Don't be deceived by anybody outside of you. 
Don't let anybody lead you astray by telling you lies. Second, do not deceive yourselves. Listen, we don't need anybody outside of ourselves to lead us astray. We're pretty good at it ourselves. We can tell ourselves the wrong thing. And we need to not tell, we need not to tell ourselves the wrong thing. Man, I tell you what, the other day I listened to somebody talk on TV and I could not believe what was coming out of this person's mouth. How much lie, how many more lies could you tell yourself? We must not tell ourselves lies. We must tell ourselves the truth. So here's a prohibition. Do not be deceived. Here's the declaration. God is not mocked, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. God's not going to be mocked. You cannot, the word there, mock, you cannot turn your nose up at God. You cannot ridicule and mock and ignore Him and hold Him in contempt. You can't honor your boys above God. You cannot honor your car above God, folks. You cannot honor your stuff above God. If you do, you're mocking God. And God will, His, he, there's a law we're going to study. And this law, it will not be mocked. God's law will not be mocked. You cannot outwit God. In other words, you and I, we're going to reap what we sow. And that's the law that we're going to talk about. It says here, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. A man reaps what he sows. Now, this law, a man reaps what he sows, it's the law of the land and it's the law of life. It's the law of the land and it's the law of human conduct. In Genesis 1, 11, 1, 21, 1, 24, and 25, at creation, God set in law this motion where he created plants and all of those plants bear fruit after their kind, right? Remember that line? And then all those animals that fly in the air, all of them bear fruit after their kind. And then there's all the animals and human beings. We bear fruit after our kind. We have sons and we have daughters that look sort of like us. It's the law of the land. Just think about agriculture. It's absolutely universal. Every farmer, every gardener, this applies to every time they go out and plant a seed. It's just as true today as it was in the beginning. It applies to you if you're young. It applies to you if you're old. It applies to all of us, whether we're experienced or inexperienced. It's a law that's impartial, predictable, immutable. Go out all day long, say all day long, let somebody say, Ben, you can fly. Or tell yourself, I can fly. And go jump out of the building three floors up and see if that is true. It's not, is it? Phyllis laughed because she knows it's not true. Something all of a sudden pulls you down and it pulls you down at a certain speed, so many meters per second squared, whatever. I can't remember all that stuff. I used to know all that stuff. And then you hit the ground and hopefully you don't die. And you learn that the law works all the time. There's no exceptions to these laws. The law always works. And when a man sows, he also reaps. And to put it bluntly, there's, there's no crop failure. And that's the thing to remember. No crop failures. So if you sow wheat, you don't get apples. You get wheat. And if you sow an almond, you don't get strawberries. You get almonds. And in fact, if you sow something, you are going to reap that something. And then you're going to, let's, let's put it the way, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to reap more than you sow. In other words, after you plant this seed, you're going to get a tree. And that's more than what you've planted. 
And then later on down the years, you got a tree, and what does it do? It dumps fruit. Every year you get later and later and later more and later than you sowed, and there's no crop failures. Well, this is also the law of life. It's the law of human conduct. Job's friend, not a good friend, Job's not good friend, Eliphaz, he said this to Job, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Well, that's true. That's true. Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, those who sow to the wind reap the whirlwind, and those who sow to righteousness, they reap the fruit of unfailing love. Jesus tells us that men are known by their fruit. This is the law of the land and it's the law of life. Now, let's look at the explanation for this law. There's two ways that we can sow. You can sow to the flesh, and you can sow to the Spirit. Let's look at sowing to the flesh. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And when you think about flesh, don't think about the word there can mean this. But we're not talking about our skin. We're not talking about our bodies. We're talking about our sin nature. You sow to your sin nature. From your sin nature, you will reap corruption. Now think about non-Christians. Think about what it means to be a non-Christian. If you sow to your sinful nature, you will reap destruction. And each one of us who are fallen in Adam, we are born with original sin. We are born with imputed guilt from what Adam did. And we're also born with a sin nature that's conveyed to us by ordinary generation from our parents. And this moral principle that's in us is operating in us such that our thoughts I'm using words from Genesis 6-5 that our thoughts and intentions of our hearts are only evil all the time. We are born opposed to God. And if you and I sow into this sinful nature, if you and I sow into it, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5:19 and 21, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I also forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You sow to that, you will not enter. You sow to that, you will not see. The kingdom of God. And this is what Eli seems to have done. Now again, I'm going to leave it open. I don't know where he's at. But thought by thought, decision by decision, compromise by compromise, he did reap a terrible judgment. We know he didn't sow to the Spirit so much of the time. And you and I both know, listen to me, you and I both know they didn't start doing this all at the beginning. They didn't go straight to the front of the temple and start sinning as wickedly as possible. And they didn't go into the tent back there in the back and start stealing from God's sacrifices at the beginning just as they were at the end. It started out slowly. First, it was probably just a little immoral talk to somebody at the front of the tent. And probably as they were making those sacrifices, they probably took just a portion or just a little bit of fat that belongs to God. 
and then they took a little bit more until they were full-blown turning their noses up at God and mocking him. But God will not be mocked. And because they sowed to the flesh, they reaped destruction. Think about what I've told you, sowing, reaping what you sow, reaping more than you sow, reaping later than you sow. They reaped a pronouncement of judgment from God. They reaped more than they sowed. They died on the battlefield. And right now they reap eternal judgment in a place called hell. Reaping what you sow and more than you sow and later than you sow. Dear unbelieving friend, if you sow to the flesh, you reap sin. If you disregard God, he will not be mocked. Emerson says this, many of y'all probably heard this, Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. And the destiny of sowing to sin is not heaven. It's hell. And things get worse after you die if this is what you do. Hell is a place, one man has said, of constant eternal punishment for the impenitent. Hell is not a place where it's sort of bad or, you know, not too bad. It's not a place of reformation. It's a place where things go from bad to worse. We reap what we sow more than we sow and later than we sow. Revelation 22.11 says it's a place where he who does wrong will continue to do wrong and he who is vile will continue to be vile. One commentator says hell is a place of spiritual decomposition. And you know, I think about what Jesus says. Jesus compared hell to Gehenna. He compared it to a dump. Do you know what goes on in a dump? Now, our dumps are different than those dumps back in those days, but you know what happened in those dumps back in those days? In those days, now, now our days, we don't take dead animals out to the dump, but in those days, they put, put their dead animals in the dump. And if you're a criminal and you didn't have family to bury you, they would take your body out and put your body in the dump. And if you were a poor person, you didn't have a place to bury your, your, your uh, uh, loved one's body, they would take your body out and put your body in the dump. And so the dump was a place where fire was always burning and worms were always working. And Jesus said, hell's a place where the fire is never quenched and the worm does not die. It's always, it's constant, it's eternal, reaping more and later than we sowed. Well, Christians, Christians, I wish that I could say that once you become a Christian that this law stops for you, but it doesn't. It's always constant. And as a Christian, Christ reigns over us, and still, but sin still remains in us. As we studied in our book just recently, just the other day, we saw that, hey, listen, you know what? Your sin nature as a Christian, it hasn't been rehabilitated at all. It's as bad as it ever was. You have Christ ruling and reigning over you, but what you have, that sin nature that's still in there, you must put it to death or it is coming after you. And every time you and I give our mind to harbor a grudge or a grievance, every time we entertain impure thinking, every time we wallow in self-pity, any time we place ourselves in an area where we know we're weak and we should get up and leave, if we're with a group of people and their conversation is going to go a certain direction and we're not careful, we'll enter into that conversation. If you know you need to get up and leave, get up and leave. 
Don't leave yourself in a place where you're, it's, it's too difficult for your self-control. Now, all of us, know, we all know we have to be self-controlled, but some of us are, there's just some places you don't need to go, right? There's some places you don't need to go. When you're at bed at night you, and you know you need, you need to get up and pray, when you're in bed at night, there may be times when you need to get up and read the Bible. Don't figure out ways how to sin and then rationalize them. This is sowing to the flesh. And where will it end? Well, it's not going to end with you falling into hell if you're God's child. But it will end with you falling under God's fatherly displeasure. Do you want that? I don't. Nobody in here wants that. <laughs> right? I pulled this out of the Westminster Confession of Faith because it's just so unbelievably perfect. Well worded. It will end with you lacking assurance of God's love. It will end with you lacking assurance of God's comfort. It will end with you lacking joy that you can have in the Holy Spirit. It will end with your own heart being hardened and your conscience is being wounded. It will end with you being hurting other people. It will end with God's hand of dis- dis- discipline upon you. And you and I will not experience a lot of His countenance restored into us until we humble our hearts and confess our sins and beg, our, beg pardon and, and uh, renew our faith and our repentance. And here's the deal. Man, we can be forgiven of all of it, right? But we can't escape the harvest. And if you go do an, a, pull a David, let this David thing really sink in. If you go pull a David and you sow to this sin for nine or ten months, you know, you go out, I mean, look, if he would have just stopped at the lust, <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> you know, he went out and he, he committed adultery and then he went out and he had to kill her husband and then he went out and he just kept living like nothing. I mean, then all of a sudden the fruit came in. The harvest came in. Now, God was with him for those 20 years. But let's don't have to, let's don't have, to have that harvest. Now, let's look at second. Let's look at second the way you can sow to the Spirit. We've looked at sowing to the flesh. Let's look at sowing to the Spirit. Verse 8 says, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You and I, we are to be in that process. Don't sow to the flesh, sow to the Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And you and I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to walk in the Spirit. And so you and I, we need to be cultivating this fruit we call love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You and I, were to walk in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. You know, if we're walking in the Spirit and led by the Spirit, there's something the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16. If you're filled with the Spirit, you'll, be, you'll have the Word of Christ richly dwelling in you. And did you know that it's really interesting? We won't do it right now. But if you're filled with the Spirit and you have richly indwelt with the Word of Jesus Christ, they have exactly the same um, benefits or the same evidences. You know what they are? You'll be submissive to God and submissive to each other. You'll sing hymns and songs. You'll speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you'll say thank you for things. (laughs) There are S's. Exactly the same one is says being filled with the Spirit. One says richly, the Word of Christ richly dwelling in you, and they have exactly the same evidences. Folks, listen. 
the world and the flesh and the devil. They want to destroy us. We talked about our adversary this morning. The devil is coming against us. And their favorite plan the world, the flesh, and the devil has is for us not to be taken all at once, but slowly. A decision, a thought, a little rebellion here, a little in, inappropriate talking there. Be selfish here, a little bit more there. And the goal is to disarm us into thinking that a little sin is really not so bad. How many of you guys know what Lost in Space is? The show? <laughs> okay. There's this show back in the 70s called Lost in Space. <laughs> I think his name was Will Robinson, right? Okay. And there was a robot on Lost in Space. And any time... Anytime something dangerous was on hand, you know what the robot used to do? He used to go, warning, 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 Will Robinson. And that's what we need to do when we start thinking about going the wrong thinking, with the wrong thinking and the wrong decisions and the wrong uh, thoughts about our sin. When I went hunting, uh, when I would go hunting, I would get up in the morning, have my little routine. I'd go through Whataburger. I'd go an hour drive. I'd get out of the car. And I'd open up the trunk, and I had on shorts. It's 32 degrees. I had on shorts and a T-shirt because I was going to – I pulled out. All my clothes are all washed. They're all clean so that no deer can smell, right? And so they're all smell-proof clothing. And I, put, I start putting my clothes on. But one day, I remember, I took my keys, and I put them in the trunk. And I mean to tell you, something inside of me started screaming, you close the trunk and you have a bad day. <laughs> Do you want to have a good day or a bad day? <laughs> I pulled those keys out of that trunk real fast. You know how easy it is for you just to go pop the trunk? I mean, I mean the, the whole world stopped. And when you start thinking about sowing to any sin, stop. You just put your keys in the trunk. You're going to have a bad day. So if you and I, if we sow to sin, we're going to reap terrible destruction. But if you and I go out and we reap, sow to the Spirit, we're going to reap eternal life. We're going to reap a quality of life today, a quality of life that's good today, and a quality of life forever and ever with Jesus and God the Father, and we'll be in their presence forever. Well, this evening we can celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to read to you the words from the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. The apostle of Jesus Christ writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, at the beginning of creation, the first Adam sowed to sin, and he reaped for the human race the whirlwind. But at just the right time, a second Adam to the rescue came. And what did he sow to? He sowed to the Spirit. 
and his food was to do the will of the Father who sent him. And at just the right time, like a seed, he was broken on the cross. He was planted in the ground, and he rose up from the dead. Victorious over sin and death and hell. And this gospel, when you receive it, you are joined to him. And when he died, you died. And when he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead to live this kind of life, to sow to the Spirit and look forward to eternal life. And so today as we come to eat and drink, Jesus offers himself to you and to me. He offers himself to you in these pieces of bread and these little cups of wine. Not literally does his, does his body become, the bread become his body or the wine become his blood. But when you eat these pieces of bread and when you drink this wine, Jesus is spiritually present in them. When you eat with faith in your heart, you will be strengthened. And so today as we come, the apostle encourages us to participate by examining our hearts. And if you don't know what we're doing tonight, then I'm going to ask that you uh, let the trays pass in front of you. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to, come and talk to Steve. Ask Steve, how do I get ready for this? Or if you're here tonight and you're a believer and you're sowing to sin, I'm going to ask you that you repent of that sin so that you can eat and drink tonight. But if you will not repent, I'm going to ask that you let the trays pass in front of you. But if you're here tonight and you're sowing to the Spirit, if you're here tonight and you're loving the Word of God, and if you're here tonight and you know that you've sinned and you need a Savior, then the tray, the trays, when they're passed by, take the bread and take the cup and eat and drink with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship and to enjoy this fellowship meal with you and with my brothers and my sisters and with one another. We pray, Father, that you'll set these uh, elements apart from their common sacred use. We pray, Father, that we would be those who are sowing to your spirit. We pray that we would be those who are sowing the word of God into our hearts and into our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us for any sin, that we might be as close to you as we possibly can on this earth until Jesus comes. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.